Hello and welcome to Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. While support for action is increasing, climate change is a wicked problem that is overly complicated and the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to give voice to those who can lead the way. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, I bring you the experts and present you information, facts and interesting ideas with the odd dash of politics to spice it all up. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. In today's episode, we look at environmental conservation practices in Australia. Specifically, we are looking at the role of private philanthropy in achieving conservation objectives and how it differs and complements public management of national parks and other conservation practices. Australia is one of the most biologically and environmentally diverse countries in the world, with significant numbers of endemic species and 16 World Heritage Sites. Management of national parks and other state-nominated conservation areas are the responsibility of state and federal government agencies. However, there are a number of non-government organisations that have emerged over the years that focus on environmental conservation and restoration. Biodiversity is what makes life possible. It supports our air quality and water systems and pollination of our plants for food production. The Australian landscape is embedded and integral to our cultural psyche, our lifestyle and our economy. Yet, the 2016 State of the Environment report says that, based on the information available, the status of biodiversity in Australia is generally considered poor and deteriorating. The report also outlines that mammals are declining and the number of endangered ecological communities and species is increasing. Some argue that the traditional approach to conservation is failing, and our extinction rates support that. So what is the role of private philanthropy and the citizen dollar in conservation? Breaking down this question today is Doug Human. Doug was the founding CEO of Bush Heritage, one of Australia's leading conservation organisations. Doug is also a long-term and highly respected conservation campaigner and chairs Landcare Australia. Doug, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Sophie. Absolute pleasure. To get started, Doug, why do we need private conservation in addition to national parks? Yeah, look, it's a it's a vexed question, really, because we want government to do the right thing, and it's a national parks and protected areas are a public good, and the government should stay in that space. The reality is that um, national parks are generally created over public land. And in engaging in private philanthropy, you have the opportunity to have protected areas on on private land as well. It's critical, and I guess where I've worked into over the years, is to have collaborations. And the beauty when we got started with private philanthropy in protected areas was the government was offering leverage that encouraged philanthropy. So sadly, in a scheme that's world-renowned, there used to be the opportunity of two Australian government dollars for every $1 that a philanthropist put up to buy land. Uh, Sadly, that scheme has gone by the by. Um, But it encouraged uh, an era of almost 10 years of of really strong philanthropic support, which has helped to build the protected area state we have in Australia now. And how does private conservation differ from national parks other than the difference between public land and private land? Is there a difference in the models that they employ? 
That's a big question because you sort of have to un- unpack what's private conservation. Um, and as I work now in the land care space, I mean, private conservation is what people are doing on their farms. So I think you intend the question to be more around the probably the straighter conservation component of private conservation. But but I think we have to be doing conservation right across the landscape on, on all 10 years. If I go directly to your question, it the, the, the beauty of working in the private space is the nimbleness and flexibility that one has and the ease with which you can build partnerships. I'm not saying you can't do that in the government space, but there are a lot more constraints. So we could, for example, at Bush Heritage, much more easily um, develop a research partnership, a science partnership, an education partnership, an Indigenous partnership in a way that is often more difficult by virtue of the bureaucratic barriers, I guess, that that operate in the public realm. Having said that, you've got to have both. And I keep going back to the need for governments to keep supporting uh, public protected areas, and they're not doing enough of it across the country. We might come back to that later, but one of the the questions that I did want to touch on was in terms of the biodiversity outcomes, do you you see different outcomes from private versus public? And... uh, are you able to point to any statistics or studies that show a difference in impact and effectiveness? That's a great question. I'm, I'm taken to a study that was done on Indigenous protected areas um, a few years ago, which demonstrated outcomes from that and the value for money for them. I can't quote the data. Look, I think it's, it's true to say that, uh, well, certainly when I was at Bush Heritage, we felt we were spending more money on biological conservation, on uh, on ecological outcomes than pretty much any national park other than perhaps some of the key world heritage areas in Australia. Um, and there, there is that opportunity to raise funds to do things quite rapidly. Going back to my earlier response, that flexibility, the nimbleness of operation that you don't have in the government space. And I think of some of the work that Bush Heritage is doing now um, for example, around the night parrot or Indigenous rangers are doing around the bilby or mallyfowl that is, I think, way ahead of what governments are able to do in, the, in their public protected areas because, and harping on it again, because they're not putting the money in mm. um, and the emphasis is not on the biological conservation as much as I think it should be. It's more on offering opportunities for people to uh, to undertake tourism or recreation, which are valid things, mm. but the primary purpose of most national parks is nature conservation. In private protected areas, that's what we could focus on. In Indigenous protected areas, that's what Indigenous people focus on. They focus on the cultural and natural heritage values that, that they feel most are most important in their lives and their futures. So what I'm hearing there, in private conservation, you can prioritise biodiversity outcomes over recreational outcomes. You absolutely can. And you can be much more um, restrictive in how people use your asset, your your piece of land, which is not to say you stop people coming. In fact, quite the contrary. One of the beauties of um, the likes of a bush heritage is um, is that you can engage people in so many components of your work. And the, mm. the, one of the most beautiful things I found in being involved with Bush Heritage was having citizens of, of all shapes and sizes and from all over the country coming and helping out with projects as they still do. If we look to the greatest threats 
to biodiversity in Australia, uh, land use, land clearing, climate change, how can private conservation offer different solutions? Yeah, I think we're seeing uh, one different so, well, I, I've commented on the ability to engage with science and the, the ease of that, but I, I think of what um, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy and other entities are doing around um, building predator-proof fences. I had the, the great fortune of being at Uluru a couple of weeks ago, just days after the uh, the, the climb uh, was, was stopped and the rock looked unshackled, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So I think of going to Uluru and the work that Ananu are doing in a, a predator-proof fence for Marla, uh, as with Australian Wildlife Conservancy and the work they're doing, building huge predator-proof fences, th- these are things that are, are not easy to undertake uh, in the in the public arena. And I think it's just generally, uh, and I'm probably repeating myself, but the the ease with which you can you can undertake pro- projects, you can trial things that uh, mm. you'd have to go through, you know, a, a dozen protocols in the in the public protected area space. And it's just so much easier to get people involved in your work uh, and, and having volunteers and unskilled people involved in your work. Look, and that makes a lot of sense. But I guess the counter to that is that in the 2016 State of the Environment report, it identified that one of the challenges that are driving or potentially um, preventing our response to biodiversity decline as being that poor collaboration and coordination of policies, decisions and management arrangements exists across sectors and between different managers, both public and private. Doug, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'd extend that and say uh, that part of the problem is the lack of collaboration even within sectors. And I think the the non-government organisation environment space has been guilty of that. And one of the things that we learnt at Bush Heritage um, and which has become more mainstream within the environment movement now is to engage widely with across tenures and and with different neighbours and particularly with uh, traditional owner communities to ensure that there is a comprehensive uh, buy-in and a large landscape scale approach so you don't have places that don't fit into the context, for example, of um, dealing with a, a, a feral pig problem or a, a feral goat problem. That it's it's across it's across tenures and it's based on a, a collaborative landscape scale model. We've learnt that in the landscape, and we're also learning it in the landscape of how our organisations interweave and best represent the interests we have uh, for the environment across the environment sector. So what I'm hearing there is that there's better collaboration, but just how much can be done given that one of the challenges for Australia is a lack of a long-term strategic plan and national long-term strategic coordinated action? It's a huge problem. Uh, And I I, I wish I had the answer to that, (laughs) Sophie. What, What I do think is that there is and I see this in many of the state and territory jurisdictions, there's a much greater willingness on the part of governments to listen to and engage with non-government organisations. And if we're not building national approaches, then we are building at least local and and regional and sometimes statewide approaches. And I'm absolutely sure now that the non-government private area protected groups, to name one particular sector, are now acknowledged and respected. They were not 15 or 20 years ago. Mm. 
A slight change of tack, but uh, last August, the government donated almost half a billion to a private um, Great Barrier Reef Foundation and was heavily criticised for doing so. What are your thoughts and observations on that event and how it affects the conversation around the role of private um, philanthropy and private organisations in conservation? Well, I don't know all the details about it. I know what was what was published. Um, on, on the face of it, it uh, it's an astonishing way of decision-making within government uh, for a very large sum of money. I've been involved in trying to get much smaller sums of money from governments for at least as worthy causes, and it's never been that easy. So it doesn't send a great message about... Um, either thinking what the priorities are or how best to resolve them. And it's not a process that I'd like to see repeated. So it's not that the funding itself was an issue, but the process of how that funding was allocated. Is that a a good way of summing up? Yeah, it it is. Uh, You would normally expect for a sum of money like that, that there would be opportunities for a range of organisations to uh, put in bids and and make recommendations about how the money would be used rather than to have it apparently uh, written over at the the stroke of a pen. That doesn't sound like a good process. So... Another change of tack, we love changes of tack on this show. Uh, You've been in this game for a long time, Doug. Uh, How has approaches to conservation and the role of private philanthropy changed over the years? It's changing even now, and and it's changed in a number of ways. Um, 15 years ago, you would have found it hard for a a philanthropist to identify themselves and to... Uh, identify that they were giving money to anyone, how much they were giving and what for, and they'd often do it on their own. In the same way, really, as I mentioned of environment organisations, that they were were operating often in silos as well. I think now uh, in, in this space, uh, all parties, whether they're grant uh, makers or grant givers, uh, realising the need for collaboration, that we will get more done and it will be better if we are doing it together and we don't try and, and cut people out uh, and we try and uh, all put our shoulder to the wheel in an effective, constructive and collaborative way. That's a very big change. And to have philanthropists talking about whether they're giving you know, $100,000 or, or several million dollars, I think is really important and it what we saw when they started talking about it was that it encouraged others to do the same. We know there's a lot of money out there and available for a range of philanthropic activities. The environment doesn't do particularly well in the whole scheme of things. I'm not sure what the current data is, but it's probably 2 to 4% of, of total giving uh, goes to the environment. Wow. And, and it should be more. Yeah. Um, and I think that includes the component that goes to dog and cat shelters. So you've got to look at how the definitions are used as well. <laughs> so there are a number of reasons why we don't, uh, we the environment sector don't do better in philanthropy. And probably part of it has been ha- how we've sold our story. Uh, but it's it's also about um, about environmental philanthropists putting themselves forward and encouraging others to do the same. And with the increasing focus on climate as as an issue of major concern for Australians, do you think that we'll see an increasing investment in environmental conservation 
charities and not-for-profits? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question because um, I think a little bit of history would um, suggest to me that when climate became an issue that people started giving money to in the late 90s, it actually had a significant effect on the money that people were giving to biodiversity conservation. Mm. And arguably, I think, and I would argue, that the biodiversity sector started to lose out to the climate sector. But it goes to my earlier point, It's a they're both connected. Mm. So, you know, the, the dots weren't connected. And I think, I think now there's much more recognition of the, uh, the, global, the global nature of, of climate change and its impacts and particularly to biodiversity conservation. So it's easier to tell that story. But the other thing that may, uh, um, led to think of in you asking that question is the uh, I see proliferation of a lot of groups in the environment and climate space, and that in itself is not a bad thing. But I would encourage people that are thinking of uh, donating and are really concerned about one or the other or both, that they have a look at what's on offer now in in the giving space and not necessarily rush to create something else. We've got a mm. lot of really effective organisations and sometimes there can be uh, an unnecessary proliferation of of quite niche entities, and that can be confusing for donors. Obviously, donor decides, so it's not really the the problem uh, <laughs> for for uh, people setting them up. But I, I think we we need to uh, be more circumspect uh, in in ensuring that the organisations that have already got standing voice, traction, uh, are encouraged to be the best they can be rather than proliferation of groups. Now, you've already touched on that the biodiversity segment receives a relatively small percentage of the philanthropic dollar. I'm assuming that one of the biggest challenges for private philanthropy and conservation is that you're reliant on the generosity of individuals in a very crowded charity market. Can you share the stories, the story of how Bush Heritage was seeded, and and how you went from a startup to a sustainable organisation? Because I think it's a beautiful story. <laughs> well, there are two components to that. One is how Bob Brown started it, um, and just the the altruism and generosity of, of Bob winning the Goldman Prize and allowing uh, for that money to be spent. On can, you, can you explain to our listeners that? Because that might have been before the time of uh, some of our listeners, including yeah. myself. <laughs> and, and also I think you want me to talk about the, the large individual. Yeah. Donor. So in 1991, uh, Bob Brown, uh, then Ordinary Citizen, won the US Philanthropic uh, Goldman Award, which is for outstanding achievement and it related to his work on the Franklin Gordon River. And the, he used the prize money, uh, which I think was around $50,000, to help enable the deposit on two blocks of land in northern Tasmania uh, near Liffey. And he then vested those two blocks in a, a newly created enterprise, being, as it was then called, the Australian Bush Heritage Fund. And that's how Bush Heritage started. Wow. And then Bob enabled uh, for other funders to help support the um, the initial deposit and ultimately purchase the land, and and from that little thing, big things grew. So you uh, you joined when it was one of those little things growing to become a bigger thing. And how did that growth? Um, what gave that a kickstart? So that got a, a huge kickstart 
firstly, really by the scheme I mentioned before of the government mm. leveraging an individual philanthropic dollar by two, but secondly by a conversation I had with a young woman in a cafe in Brunswick in Melbourne. And this was a young woman who had some knowledge of bush heritage uh, and she invited me to coffee and after about half an hour she said I wanted to make she wanted to make a significant donation. I thought, well, that would be lovely. And then at the end of the meeting, she handed me a cheque for $1.2 million. <laughs> and How she, much did you have in the bank at the time? Not that much. <laughs> not that much. <laughs> and that's one of those transformational gifts. Mm. Uh, it enabled us to buy our first big property in central Queensland in the midst of then was what uh, was massive land clearance. And it enabled us to mount a large campaign about who we were and what we do and and put us into magazines and newspapers around the country. And it it is one of those, as I say, transformational things that, that happened. And she remains anonymous uh, to this very day. Interesting. I'm such a nosy neighbour. I want to know who it is, but I'm sure you won't share that. Um for those of our audience who are concerned about biodiversity and don't have $1.2 million to write a cheque for, what can they do to make a difference? Is this just a problem for the bush or are there ways for metropolitan citizens to have more direct impact? Yeah. So the $1.2 million gifts are phenomenal. But what most groups rely on is is regular small donations, and that that's something that anybody can achieve. Uh, when we worked with uh, Chris Darwin, who's the great great grandson of Charles Darwin, and he made a gift to Bush Heritage to enable the purchase of a property in Western Australia. And when we travelled around with Chris, he'd say, "It's uh, this is going to cost you five dollars an acre. It's as much as a cup of coffee and a muffin." Well, it, it was. 15 years ago. <laughs> so it's really not a lot, but it makes a huge difference. Uh, 5 10 20 $30 a month is is really, really significant uh, for, for almost every organisation. So people can do that. They can often volunteer their times, uh, their time. And it's not just about uh, the country. It, it is about the city. And I guess the work I'm doing with Landcare at the moment demonstrates that. I was at a a state conference in New South Wales in Broken Hill uh, last month, and we learned about what Landcare Broken Hill is doing. And they are basically regreening uh, Broken Hill, uh, an urban, uh, well, uh, it's a not an urban centre, it's a uh, significant rural centre, some 17,000 people. And people are doing things like uh, having uh, flower and tree boxes out, outside their home, growing growing plants for subsequent planting in uh, regeneration zones around Broken Hill. So I use that as an example. Just uh, last fortnight, I launched a new business in Melbourne for a young friend. And it's a business that... Um, where he gathers materials off skips and, and rubbish uh, dumps and so on, and he uses those to construct flower beds and garden beds and particularly focuses on doing those things in primary schools. Mm. And I think it's really critical that, that sort of activity does take place where kids can see the importance of growing things, whether it's food or, or plants, 
be they native or otherwise, and they get their hands dirty. And particularly if you're doing it with recycled products, it sort of ticks all the boxes. So looking after the environment, thinking about biodiversity, it uh, it can happen anywhere, city or country, and in rural areas like Broken Hill or in uh, metropolitan Armadale in Melbourne. And uh, for, for our listeners, for context, Doug and I, we met, he's the chairman of Landcare Australia, as I mentioned, uh, this year I took on the role as the 30-year ambassador for Landcare. And that's given me some fantastic opportunities. And one of my favourite was uh, during Land Care Week, I got to go out to Curl Curl and be part of a coastal um, dune replanting event. And there was just something so satisfying about getting my hands dirty and physically being responsible for replanting uh, and protecting some of these coastal dunes. And it really brought home for me just how empowering it can feel when you're so frustrated about environmental, the environmental situation in Australia to actually just do your bit. So um, blatant plug for, for land care, but it has provided so many local communities access to, to making a difference in their own backyard. And I think it illustrates the point that people can get involved in in these biodiversity outcomes in all sorts of ways. Uh, it can be in your local area, it can be a public area, it can be a private area, but opportunities abound and it's only a matter of looking close to your, to your home and you will probably find something. And that's a beautiful segue to my, my final question, which is given that at a national level, Australia is trending in the wrong direction when it comes to conservation and biological diversity, what gives you hope that we can get this right? I immediately go to youth and the young people that, that I work with, including you, Sophie, and the the willingness that there is for uh, for people to be be involved and active, whether it is helping out their local group or or putting money in or or supporting an organisation. Uh, I'm also given uh, hope by the the huge leaps and bounds in science and thinking about how we deal with some of the really thorny problems that we have, for example, feral uh, feral pests, um, about the new discoveries that are that are happening and the the massive engagement now of Indigenous rangers and traditional owner people across the country in looking after their country and mm-hmm. and our shared country of Australia. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about about the work that Indigenous rangers do and the receptiveness that there is to engaging with traditional owner people. So it's a daunting task, but uh, when you're around a bit, you see the way people have chipped chipped at at making improvements and and there are lots of improvements despite uh, the range of calamities that are around us and obviously sitting here in a smoke haze of um, of Sydney is is one such uh, of those calamities. Um, look, we've we've got to work together to work our way through this, and there are people and organisations with whom any of your listeners uh, can work, and uh, we'd love to have them involved at Landcare or whichever other organisation they choose. <laughs> look, what a fantastic and uplifting way to end the show. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and having a chat with us today about uh, the role of private philanthropy in Australian conservation. Uh, I really hope that people took away a sense of um, what can be done and what is happening. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the show and look forward to seeing you on the flip side. Yeah, and getting our hands dirty together. <laughs> <laughs> 
for sure, for sure. We've got a busy year ahead of us. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Doug. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. A reminder that the views of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily representative of the organisations they work for. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out to my website, sophietaylorprice.com, or on Instagram or Twitter. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope you all get a great break. I look forward to breaking down the big issues again with you next week. Until then, bye for now and see you on the flip side.